Many of you know me as a professor here for years, having taught in the area of Christian education and missions, but probably most don't know a little bit about my trajectory on what brought me to this place. Uh, I grew up in California, but at the age of 17, I moved to northern Minnesota and thought I would kind of live off the land like Grizzly Adams. That didn't really work really great. So after about six months and a little bit of desperation and starvation, I finally got a job at a small nursing home in a town of 400 people in Big Fork, Minnesota. And uh, I started off as a certified nursing assistant, a CNA, and almost immediately I realized CNAs do all the work, get the least pay, LPNs help you out, get more pay, and RNs do nothing but sit at a desk and get the most pay, so I went to nursing school. And it was while I was in nursing school, I met my wife, Julie, graduated from nursing school, uh, got a job in uh, Hibbing, Minnesota, and immediately realized that RNs do all the work, get the least pay, directors of nurses help you out, get more pay, and administrators do nothing but sit at a desk and get the most pay. So uh, it was off to Dallas Baptist University for a healthcare administration degree. But in the course of that journey came the call, the unmistakable call to ministry. And so as I'm preparing to go to DBU, I am given my first opportunity to preach as a uh, veteran 21-year-old at Calvary Baptist Church in Hibbing. And it was a joyous experience as I'm proclaiming the word. I preach from the book of Amos. I remember that sermon so well to this day. And it was a charge. I'll tell you what, it is living out the call. You, you've been called and now you're fulfilling that call. And I remember going to uh, Pastor Thomas Hap Hurdle and saying, thank you so much. When do I get to preach next? And he looked at me and he said, uh, you, you don't. I'm the pastor, not you. But but what, where am I going to preach? What am I going to do? The call's on me. And he said, well, you need to find a place to preach. And he recommended that I would start preaching in nursing homes. He said, just go to some of the nursing homes and say, I would like to volunteer to lead in worship services. And so I went to five nursing homes in the area, in Hibbing, Chisholm, and Buell. And, and I said, can, can I preach? And they all said, yes. And so I was preaching every week, just like a regular pastor, but I was preaching in nursing homes. And here's what I learned about that, and I hope that you're, you're hearing this. If you are called to preach and you want to learn a great laboratory, it, it's not here at the seminary. It, this is great, but in a nursing home, you have to preach despite distractions and smells and noises. I'll tell you what, you think little children crying is a distraction? Go into a nursing home. You have to be short. If you get too long, they're all going to be asleep on you, okay? You have to be biblically accurate. There is some white-haired man or woman who knows the Bible better than you do, and they will make sure you know it if you mess up because they love you, and they're going to be there for you, but you will see God at work. I was in one nursing home, and there was a lady there who had been institutionalized her whole life. From the time she was a child, she was in a mental institution, a sanitarium. Eventually, they moved her into another facility. And now at her age of the 70s, late 70s, she was now in the nursing home. Had been institutionalized all of her life. 
and she had never spoken a word. The only sounds she made, and she made these about 20 hours a day, were sounds like, ah, ah, and it wore on everybody. And so whenever someone was coming into the nursing home to preach or teach or do an activity, the staff would immediately will her in because that meant they were watching her. The staff didn't have to. So every time I would preach, they would bring her in. And she was one of those distractions I spoke of. On one Sunday, I had about four volunteers from Calvary Baptist Church with me. They were leading in the worship. I preached the gospel. And I gave an invitation. And in that invitation... I shared that if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you would like to know that your sins are forgiven, that would you like to be set free from the sin that binds us and experience everlasting life, God's free gift of salvation, would you say yes to Jesus? And as I'm giving this invitation, this woman who all of her life had only said, eh, said, yes, yes, yes. And her speech started to become coherent, and everybody's flocking around her as she's saying yes to Jesus. We celebrated with her. The staff came in. They actually called the doctor to come and, and check her out because she's now saying, yes, Jesus, yes, Jesus. And all of the pain, all of the the burdens, all of the contractures, just everything just started to relax in her body. That afternoon, Pastor Hurdle and I went to go visit her. And when we arrived at the nursing home, the ambulance was taking her to the funeral home. She had passed away. Truly a thief on the cross moment for her, where right before she was to meet her heavenly father, the Lord gave her eternal life, a new hope. My friends, this is the excitement about the opportunities that we have of ministering to seniors. Now, as a veteran of over 30 years of chapel sermons, starting at Dallas Baptist University, then Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, later on Gateway Seminary, and then over 17 years on faculty at Midwestern, I am frankly unable to recall a single message on the subject of aging during chapel. Now, that might say one of two things. My memory is really short, or I was sleeping, or nobody's really broached this topic, and yet it's a topic of relevance, given that America is in a season that is called the silver tsunami by demographers. This is a topic of relevance, this topic of aging. Most of you are or will be serving in churches that are consisting of predominantly senior adults. And knowing the impact of aging from a biblical perspective will help you as a leader support the mission of your church. As I noted, the numbers are staggering. This past February, Forbes magazine, a nationally recognized financial publication, noted the impact that 70 million, 73 million seniors in the U.S. and Canada are going to have on the economy. At the heart of these numbers is the fact that more people turn 65 today than turn 5 in our culture, and as many people are turning 69 today as are celebrating their ninth birthday today. This is an unprecedented season in America's history. 
A Harvard University study that was reported in Baptist Press earlier this year showed that the average Southern Baptist adult, that is the average member who is 18 or older in a Southern Baptist church, is now 55.2 years old. That ranks our denomination as 13th among 45 faith groups that was in the Harvard University study. 12 years ago, the same study ranked uh, Southern Baptist 15th place. So we have moved up that chart from 15th to 13th place. The oldest group in the study was the Missouri Synod Lutherans with an average age of 58.7. And the youngest faith group in that study were Muslims at 32.2 years of age. The aging in the church is outpacing the aging of America. And this will have an impact on you as a staff member, as a pastor, a denominational worker. It's going to have an impact on you. How big of an impact? Let me just say substantial. And that is why we must understand aging from a biblical perspective. Now, the fears and challenges of aging are not new. Two of my heroes in the Bible, Moses in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament, both wrote of the challenges of aging. In fact, when we read of Moses in Numbers 20, he is like many of the aged that I work with today as he had unfiltered contention for incompetence. And if you've ever been in a nursing home with elderly people, you understand they have this unfiltered contention with incompetence. And boy, he's there. And then you have Paul, who in the second recorded letter to the Corinthians, writes of his physical body that is wasting away. It is decaying. And the challenges that it brings. These are godly men, men who are my heroes, and men who speak of the challenges of aging. So this morning, I want us to consider the perspective of aging, a biblical perspective from another writer, a writer who, whose identity is really unknown and whose words are recorded as a song for God's people. So I'm going to invite you to join me as we read Psalm 71, which is often referred to the prayer of the aged. And I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we read Psalm 71 Again, a prayer that is often called the prayer of the aged. Beginning with verse 1, Psalm 71. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and save me. Extend your ear to me and help me. Be a rock of dwelling to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Save me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the wrongdoer and the ruthless, for you are my hope. Lord God, you are my confidence from my youth. I have leaned on you since my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have become a marvel to many, for you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all day long. Do not cast me away at the time of my old age. Do not abandon me when my strength fails. For my enemies have spoken against me, and those who watch for my life have consulted together, saying, God has abandoned him. Pursue and seize him, for there is no one to save him. God, do not be far from me, my God. 
hurry to my aid. May those who are enemies of my soul be put to shame and consumed. May they be covered with disgrace and dishonor who seek to injure me. But as for me, I will wait continually. I will praise you more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long. For I do not know the art of writing, and I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God, and I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, God, do not abandon me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. For your righteousness, God, reaches to the heavens, you who have done great things. God, who is like you? You have shown me many troubles and distresses. You will revive me again, and you will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. May you increase my greatness and turn to comfort me. I will also praise you with a harp and your truth, my God. I will sing to you with the lyre. Holy one of Israel, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you and my soul which you have redeemed. My tongue will also tell of your righteousness all day long, for they are put to shame. They are humiliated who seek my harm. May God bless the hearing of his word. Please be seated. The 71st Psalm is a direct address to God. Although the petitioner is not identified, many commentators believe it might have been a psalm of David. Some say it was a psalm of Jeremiah. Clearly, the writer, whoever he was, felt overwhelmed, and he felt that he needed the Lord's help, guidance, and protection. What is important for us to recognize, regardless of our age, this is a psalm that is a ready source of instruction for anyone whose prayers are becoming a plea for help. The psalm is characterized by hope, with the writer offering to provide a written account of God, of Yahweh's deeds of righteousness. As we start the book, the first four verses of this psalm recount God's faithfulness. In fact, in verse 3, we read that the writer refers to God as my rock. The starting place for each one of us is recognizing that God must be our foundation. If we're building our lives on anything other than God and his revealed truth through his word, we are building on a faulty foundation, a foundation that will fail when the storms of life and ministry come. If we do not build on the right foundation, the rock of which the author refers to, we will find ourselves frustrated and experiencing a lack of joy and fulfillment in ministry. When I look at our world today and our culture, and we are in this celebrity culture, think about it. The celebrities, the billionaires, they're saying now in 2025, we'll have our first trillionaire living in America. These individuals who are financial mongrels, celebrities, athletes, routinely report their lives as unfulfilled. Why? Their foundation is wrong, and it does not weather the storms that come regardless of your status, your celebrity, or your wealth. And so the first of these four verses recount God's faithfulness. Then the next set of verses are a reminder of God's help in the past. The author writes, For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. 
I had the privilege of being raised in a Christian family. And yet, even when you're raised in a Christian family, there comes a time when your faith is going to be tested. Your faith is your own. It is not someone else's. A great treatise of that is found in a former faculty member, Dr. Robert Matz, who's now the the dean and provost at Hannibal LaGrange University. His dissertation dealt with this issue of of faith in growing up in a Christian home versus maybe a non-Christian home, where he talks about islands of competency that allow a relatively young person to come to faith at a young age. So I was relatively young. And yet I remember when my test of faith came. And then later on, my son, who I remember baptizing him at an RA camp after he had made a profession of faith around the campfire. We were at a camp, and our church was there, and, and we fo- he followed in baptism. And, and I remember two things about it. One, the water in northern Minnesota on opening weekend is really, really cold. I mean, like in the 40s. Okay, so it was a very cold baptism, but he was relatively young. But I remember when his test of faith came, it was in his first year at Cal Poly as a college student. And he had saved all summer to buy a computer. This is in about 2000. And immediately his computer was stolen. And he was so upset. What am I going to do? And he was angry. He, He was financially hurt by that. And I said, have you prayed? And I remember him saying, what good is prayer going to do? Someone stole my computer. And I know who did it, but we can't prove it. And I said, well, let's pray. And we prayed. And uh, we sought some wise counsel. And uh, our wise counsel told us, you know, why don't you just write the company, write to Toshiba, and and just let them know. And, And he wrote this letter to Toshiba, an email. And it happened to be that one of the vice presidents of the company, um, the email had been printed off by an office worker, and it was the, the, the one piece of paper that was on top of the computer, and a vice president saw the email from a college student who had lost his computer on the first day of class. And Josh got a call from the vice president of Toshiba saying, we're sending you the very best computer we make. And by the end of the week, he had a brand new computer, and he said, Dad, what just happened? I said, God. It's, it's God understanding our needs. And, and I remember that moment because his faith, which he had proclaimed and professed, suddenly became very real to him. And in this psalm, the author is writing in this second set of verses that God has been his confidence, his, his source since his youth. And I believe this is a lesson for all of us because we're reflecting on God's faithfulness in the past. Think back to your salvation in that moment that God took you from darkness into light, from death to life. Think back to your baptism and that public profession of your faith. Think back to times that God has delivered us. So the author starts with talking about God's faithfulness and God being the rock. He then moves into God's faithfulness in the past. But now we move to the central focus which is his plea. And this plea begins in verse 9 with, do not cast me away. Some translations read, do not discard me in my old age. You see, as we age, the accomplishments realized through work, career, ministry, family, and other achievements are no longer present. And oftentimes it leads to a feeling of being cast off or discarded. I believe the psalmist was raising this concern 
to the Lord. When you are 80, you're not going to be sitting around talking about your days at Midwestern. You may be talking about Dr. Allen's book, Turnaround. But the reality is, all of those accomplishments are probably not going to be the conversations. I can guarantee you, as I listen to those kind of conversations around the tables on a regular basis, seniors are not talking about the awards they received. They're not talking about their papers at ETS. They're not talking about those things. Frankly, they're talking more about bowel movements and they're talking about Metamucil. Okay, I hate to tell you that. But life changes. Do not cast me away when the relevance that you have now by the world standards, not by God's, but by the world standards may not be there. And then notice what he goes on to say. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. Here's a reality that we need to understand about our seniors. Things that you and I do intuitively cannot be done. Before chapel, I had the privilege of running down. I wanted to just say, you know, congratulations to the team for a great job on the, the self-study and on the uh, site visit that we just had. So I went it down to to Jared Cathcart's office. And, you know, I kind of ran down the stairs, and then I came back up getting ready for chapel, and I, I did two steps at a time. You know what? Seniors can't do that. Many seniors cannot do that. My father, who was a very active person, could never do that today. Two years ago, he could have, but he can't today. Things that we think of just natural, getting up in the morning and getting dressed. You have members that are having to spend an hour intentionally thinking about trying to get dressed so that they can show up to church if there is someone to even take them. If there is someone to take them. A research study by one of our employees who was a doctoral student at the time focused on the response to senior adults during COVID. And that study in the churches here in Missouri was staggering because what we discovered is in covid most churches abandon their senior ministries. And yet, aren't they members? Aren't we for the church? Aren't they part of the church? Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. Imagine getting to the point where even walking to church or driving to church is impossible without assistance. The psalmist articulated those type of concerns. The psalmist also articulated a fear. Do not be far from me, my God. Verse 12, do not be far from me. You see, as one ages, the feelings of abandonment often increase. And that fear is amplified when one's family is no longer nearby or one's friends have already passed. Imagine having a cohort of friends and each and every day you're seeing one pass away. Tomorrow, my father will be observing virtually the funeral of his last friend. Every week, they've been having coffee and talking about the things that the Lord has done. And his friend passed away at 83. My dad is 88. Wow. Have you thought about that perspective? on behalf of your church members, upon behalf of the seniors that are a part of the body of Christ of which you attend, do not be far from me. And this feeling of isolation 
is expanded when we are no longer able to have the mobility that you and I just simply take for granted. One of the things I love about Psalm 71, too, is its honesty. Honesty is an essential element of our faith. You know, just as this psalmist is being brutally honest before God about the challenges that he is experiencing, Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Sometimes we put on a facade of what Christianity is like, and we don't really ever have an honest conversation about our shortcomings, our limitations, our faults, and our failures. It's foolish to go through life not being honest with God about our feelings, our fears, and our concerns. And so we learn from the psalmist the importance of that transparency and honesty before the very creator who knows us far better than we know ourselves. The final section of Psalm 71 focuses on praise. And this is another exciting transition because Psalm 71 now gives us back the hope and the faith that we all embrace. Look at verse 20. You who have shown me many troubles and distresses will revive me again. Here we are long before the events that took place in Golgotha and then Calvary, reflecting a hope in the resurrection and the revival that only Christ can give to us. What has happened in Psalm 71? The perspective has changed. The conditions that brought the writer fear and apprehension had not changed. Hear me. The fears and the problems, the weaknesses, the contention that brought the writer apprehension and fear had not changed, but the writer's perspective had changed. He knew his relationship with God was sufficient. He knew that God would revive him. He knew the Lord would bring him up. He knew that he could put his confidence and faith in God and God's word to overcome the cares and concerns of his daily existence. You know, that is true whether you are preparing for an exam where you're demonstrating your ability to parse the Greek, whether you are trying to balance church, family, and work and studies, if you are fearful of the cultural change that is sometimes accelerating at rates that are almost unfathomable, if you're concerned about national unrest, Maybe you're even concerned about questions of dying or of health, as were reflected by this author. Having the perspective that the author embraced is essential, and that is perspective of hope. Does your perspective need to change? Is your perspective what it should be? Psalm 71 is not just a psalm about aging. It is a psalm about life. It is a reminder of God's faithfulness in the past. It is a reminder of his provision for our present. And it is an exhortation about the hope he gives our future. A couple of years ago, several were a little bit dubious when I announced that I would be going to Baptist Homes and Healthcare Ministries. Uh, about half of the faculty thought that it was the children's home and that I was going to be dealing with children's ministry because the names are somewhat similar. Uh, the other half just kind of thought, well, maybe he's having early onset Alzheimer's. Uh, but the reality is 
God is a God who never wastes anything. I don't know why at age 17 I pursued a gerontology focus and then went into nursing. And when I graduated, opted to work in long-term care, not acute care. And then when God called me to ministry, he had to spend about 25 years preparing me for what I'm doing today. Since 1913, Psalm 71.9 has served as the biblical foundation of Baptist homes and healthcare ministries. In fact, the words of Psalm 71.9 are emblazoned on the walls and the gate of our original campus. And it's a unique sanctity of life ministry that serves the need, the needs of the aging. Why do we need to understand that? Because we need a biblical perspective. I want you to imagine just for a moment. I want you to imagine you are in your office or you're at home. But better yet, imagine you're in the office, you're at work, and the phone rings. And it is your elderly mother, and she is crying, and she's very agitated. The plumber stole my remote. The plumber stole my remote. And you're, you're going, what? And your mind is trying to reflect back, what, what is she talking about? And then you remember, you have helped your mother arrange for a plumber to come because she has a leaking faucet. And so you had to help her get it set up, and now the, the plumber is over there. And, and so you know that the plumber came, and she's going, the plumber stole my remote! And you can't get her to calm down. She's so agitated. She's so frustrated because she feels violated. And finally, after talking to her, said, well, okay, mom, mom, I'm sure that the plumber didn't steal the remote. That doesn't help. Telling your mom the plumber did not steal the remote is not helping. So you said, okay, I'll call the plumbing company. And you call the plumbing company, and they assure you that none of their plumbers would steal the remote. But eventually, they give you the cell phone number of the plumber who actually fixed the faucet. And you call him up, and, and you say, you know, I, I know you wouldn't have taken the remote, but maybe mom put it in one of your toolboxes. And so he checks all the toolboxes. He looks around the truck. He, I can't find the remote. I know I didn't see a remote. I didn't steal the remote. I promise you. And so your mom's calling again. She's still agitated. She can't turn on television to watch Gunsmoke for the 77th time. And so you finally have to go and say, you know, I, I've, got to, I've got to leave the office early today. I've got to go check on my mom. And so you drive across town and you go to your mom's house and there she is agitated. She feels violated. She feels scared because someone stole her remote and said, mom, mom, l l let's calm down here a minute, okay? I'll, I'll tell you what, why don't, why don't we have some iced tea? Just sit down and let's relax. And you go to make some iced tea and when you go to the freezer... To get out ice cubes, there is the remote control. What do you do? Where do you go? How do you respond? That is why we're here. That's why Missouri Baptists have Baptist homes and healthcare ministries and have for 109 years. And I am privileged to be able to say that our staff includes five Midwesterners, many of which are here in our senior leadership roles, in addition to many others that serve. We also have several trustees who are part of the Midwestern family, including our chairman of the trustees, Dr. Mike McMullen. Um, so we, we are a very international organization. <clears throat> but before we close, I want to return to our text. Five verses after sharing 
his fear of abandonment. In verse 9, the writer declares, but for me, I will hope always. But for me, I will hope always. It has been a great joy and a continuing privilege to be a part of the Midwestern family, to be a part of a community of faith that embodies the very hope that the author is articulating, a hope that is grounded in God's Word. And I pray that this generation of Midwesterners will go out and they will impact our world for Jesus Christ, and that you will go out with a perspective, a biblical perspective, not just in reaching the young, but every age group, including the aging. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we interact with your word this morning, I think it is appropriate that we really do not know the identity of the author. For Lord, that author could be my mom or my dad. That author could be articulating the voice of a grandparent or a great-grandparent, an aunt or an uncle. And Lord, we do not know the financial or the social standing of this author, but what we do know is that their words resonated with those who sung this psalm. And I pray, Lord, that because these are ultimately your words, that they would resonate with us as we consider our response to those and this growing number of aging that will be in our churches. Lord, let us not bemoan that reality, but let us embrace that reality. So Lord, if we are faithful with our aging, then you will entrust us with all age groups. Lord, help us to be mindful of that. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.